But we continue our series through the book of Colossians. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles and join me in the book of Colossians chapter 3. And today we'll be looking, um, in terms of context, in verses 1 to 17. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to help out the Colossian Christians in their faith. As teachers from within their church were saying that their life in Christ was not enough. And so their solution was to say, hey, you guys should add on stuff to your Christian life in order to live the really full Christian life. Whether it be uh, things like mysticism, legalism, extra laws. And Paul here writes clarifying, no, you actually have the fullness of life. And that is found in the fullness of Jesus Christ. And he also holds out and he explains what the basics of a godly life really ought to look like. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. I'll go ahead and read that right now. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as Christ has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So main point if you're taking notes, the Christian life is a life of new direction. The Christian life is a life of new direction where we leave behind the old self and put on the new self. The Christian life is a life of new direction where we leave behind the old self and put on the new self. Now, truth be told, we're actually only going to cover two-thirds of this passage today, and then we're going to finish it off next week. So this is, in very many many ways, a two-part series or sub-series. Today we look at how the Christian life is a life of new direction and how we are to leave behind the old self. And next week we look look about how we are to put on the new self. And uh, this, because the text itself, the passage is so incredibly practical, this sermon is actually going to be very practical. Uh, and in previous times, you know, we want, 
if you look there, let's say at, at chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, there it's actually incredibly theological. It's all about the person of Christ. And so naturally that sermon there was very theological. Uh, so when it comes to this passage, as we let every passage drive what we're teaching, uh, this sermon here will be very practical as well as next week's. So keep that in mind here as we look about specifically and camp out on sexual purity. Let's go ahead and start with how the Christian life is a life of new direction. Go ahead and look at verses 1 to 4. And if you're scanning through there in verses 1 and 2, you see what Christians are commanded to do. It says, seek or pursue. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So right here is so clear that Paul is commanding Christians to actually do something. And many people, they might say, you know, God is a God of grace. That means we actually don't have to do anything. And then when the commands are preached, like these commands, people quickly tend to say, oh, oh, you guys are a legalistic church. You are, you know, you're doing things in order to earn salvation. But we know very clearly that that is not what Paul says. Paul believes in the gospel of grace. He believes in a, a, a salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ. But yet he has no hesitation calling the church, commanding the church to go ahead and do certain things. This section, if you look at it, it's just filled with imperatives or Paul telling us what we are to do. He calls us very clearly to action. And here in verses 1 and 2 already, we are called to live a heavenly minded life or really a Christ like life. That's what he commands us to here. And it's heavenly minded because it is, or heaven is where Christ is. That's what he means there when he says, set our minds on things above. He doesn't mean just think of upwardly things. He says, set our minds there because that is where Christ is. Now, if we just took these verses and tried to understand them alone, we could actually misinterpret them quite easily. If we forgot about the cross and what Jesus Christ has already accomplished, and then we come to this and say, okay, set your mind on things above, seek the things that are above, this might sound like modern self-help. It could, if we're just taking these verses and looking at them uh, apart from its context, you know, self-help that might say, visualize it, and then you will achieve it. When life stinks, seek the things that are above, and you too can bring heaven down to earth. Or, if we took these verses out of context, it can make it seem like the Christian faith is more like a way of living or a philosophy or something that you try out for a little while. Maybe this type of thinking too says that Christ's supposed followers merely pledge themselves to live a particular way of life. We commit ourselves to living to some moral standard found in a book that's 2,000 years old. Which is what some people think Christianity really is. Or, if we take these verses out of context, we can also think here that this is just a life of legalism. That really, we do these things and therefore we earn our salvation and good standing with Jesus Christ. But all of these things is, are not how Paul intends that we read these things. For the genuine Christian, we seek and set because we have been saved. For the genuine Christian, we seek and set because we have been saved. Salvation has already been won for us in Jesus Christ. It's not because tradition tells us to. 
We don't seek consent because we feel like living a moral life in and of ourselves. No, we seek consent because we have been saved. And so what God commands us to do, he himself roots in what he has already done. The imperative or the command, the imperative is rooted in the what is called the indicative or who you are. So if you guys remember, a couple weeks ago I used the illustration of how... Um, you know, those who grow up, let's say, in foster homes, unfortunately, a lot of them are always suspicious as they move on to the next house. But then when, when the father of fathers comes along to adopt that child into his house, and that father is a perfect father who's going to give and lavish all of his resources and everything he is onto his new adopted child, that child doesn't need to scrap for affection anymore. The child doesn't need to fight for his survival anymore. Instead, he's called to live in the reality of who this real father is. He's already been adopted into his family. And so what father wouldn't care, genuinely care about how this child in his family now lives? He wants to see him thrive. He wants to see her thrive. And so he holds out to her, knowing all of the baggage that she has as she brought, as she brought that baggage into the family... He wants to see that person lay them aside, lay all those things aside, and actually help in the process. And those things actually come with commands and calls for that person to live accordingly. Now that you are in my household, that's what's going on here. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul holds out so clearly the supremacy of Christ and the finality, the decisive work of Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross for sins. And in verse 21, their reconciliation is already had. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, this is verse 21 of chapter 1. He says, you guys who were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, past tense, in his body of flesh by his death. There you have the ultimate example in the display of love here. Our debt is gone. Reconciliation is had. When Satan and death were licking at our heels, holding death over our head, God, he says there in chapter 2, verse 14, it's canceled. Our debt is canceled with the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal de demands. This he sets aside. And so we who come into God's house, we say, our father's got it covered. You might be after me, but our father's got it can't covered. This here, it speaks of how when God created us, he created us to live in a good relationship with him, a perfect relationship, but yet we re rebelled against him. We earned for ourselves a just condemnation and judgment for sinning against God. And so hanging over us was this debt with all of its legal demands, a death sentence, because the righteous God can only look upon righteousness. The question then is, how do we get then get back into fellowship with this God? The answer is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the supreme one who alone is able to bear the wrath that we deserve to cover our debt, to set it aside by being nailed to the cross. And so in the book, you know, it speaks of us being united to Jesus Christ in his death. So where he dies to sin... We too die to sin. All in the work of Jesus. And where Christ is raised from the dead, we too are raised from the dead 
to experience new resurrection life. So given what Christ has already accomplished, reconciliation, given that he has already set aside this debt and all of its legal demands, here we then are called to walk in him, in all of the realities that God is, that he indeed is our faithful father, perfect father, who loves. He's already won for us a salvation. If you look there in 2.6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ, that is, you've embraced him already, He says, so walk in him. Live in the reality of who your Savior is. Right, so you see that there? This is already taking place, and so now he turns to how we then are to live. The commands are rooted in what he's already done. And all of these past tense verbs are present there in in our chapter, in in chapter 3. So there in verse 1 it says, if you have been raised, that's already past tense. And then verse 3, for you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then verse 9, it says there, you have put off the old self with his practices and already have put on the new self. So these things have already happened to the Christian. So if you are here with us today, these things, praise God, have already been accomplished. And if you try and fulfill these commands, forgetting that you have already been adopted into his family, this is a vain pursuit for you. You might feel some of the vanity of this pursuit even right now as this sin that you so try to get rid of and run away from. It keeps on pursuing you. It's right there. It is like very much your shadow. And if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, Christ says, no, you look to Christ first, then you look to my commands. You look and see what Christ does and what he offers on the cross. And you live in that. Then when it comes to a life of morality, you understand what it actually means to live that type of life. And that pursuit will not be vanity anymore. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, this calls, us to, for, this calls you to turn to him and to repent of your sins and put your trust and believe in him alone for salvation. And then you can look to the moral one, the righteous one, the perfect one who enables you to live this Christian life. So now that we've established that our new life of direction stems from our new life in Christ, what does this actually look like? This actually brings us to point number two. It looks like leaving your old self behind. This is in verses 5 to 11. Just as our previous section was driven by a command or an imperative, this section is too. And it says there in verse 5, it says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. It's interesting there, you know, he already says that we have died with Christ, but yet it tells us, put to death these things. It's interesting there, you know, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved, and this is really a process here. We have already died, but yet we are to put to death, and this putting to death is to mark the Christian life here. And it leaves us in an expectant sort of posture, knowing that our life is hid with Christ. And when he appears, our life will appear with him in glory. So as we wait for that, our life is supposed to look like a battle, a putting to death. Now this doesn't mean that everything on earth is bad when he says, put to death all the earthly stuff that is in you. There are beautiful displays in scripture of how... uh, People go about appreciating the earthly things. 
So nature, for example, right, it displays God's glory. Stars, the heavens, nature, even our, the animals that we can enjoy, right? All those things are earthly. They're not in and of themselves bad. Take in Song of Songs, for example, you know, you have two lovers appreciating each other's bodies and the relationship they have in the covenant of marriage. There, that's to be appreciated. In Ecclesiastes, we're told to appreciate our work. Even go on enjoying the food and the drink that God gives us. What he means here by earthly, is he's, he's drawing a contrast here between the heavenly things that are marked by Christ and then the earthly things that are marked by sin. That's what he's talking about there. When he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, he's talking about the stuff that's affected by sin. And in verses 5 to 7, he names them, right? He clarifies. He says, this is what it means to leave, this, this is the stuff that you're to leave behind or put to death, right? It's really uh, clear there. And Paul addresses the more general thing. So, but, you know, before he's, he was discussing the false teachers and the issues of the church that concerned them. Now he just moves to talk about general things that the Colossian church was wrestling with. Their pagan life, their former patterns uh, that they brought into the Christian life. Look there in verse 5. He says the earthly things are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. In verse 7 he says there, anger, <coughs> wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying and this really is the baggage right look at there in verse 7 this is the baggage that they bring into the christian life into their father's home so to speak he says you too once walked in all these ways that is all of us we walked in these ways and he says even though you are a christian now and even though you've died with christ you are to put them away put them away Okay, so we're going to look at verse 7, which is the second list. And then we're going to camp out mainly on the first list, that is verse 5, okay? Just to let you know. Um, we're going to look mainly at the first list, verse 5. But let's look now at verse 7. So in, in their Christ-like life of new direction, they are supposed to put away all these things. Anger and wrath, right? There in verse 7, these things go together. And then the rest of the list, it, it really all flows from anger and wrath. So some of you guys know what it's like to be an angry person, you know, pre-Christ. I was an angry person pre-Christ, very angry. Um, it, look there, malice, right? That's the intention to harm. This often results, you know, if you guys have ever intended to harm anybody, you know that it results in slander or gossiping, cutting down people. And then it also results in obscene or abusive language towards other people. And it's interesting, you know, all of these things, what do they do in terms of a community? They break up a community, doesn't it? These things. If you're anger and wrathful towards other people, if you have malice towards other people, it tears apart a community. And this is the antithesis of the gospel, isn't it? So here he calls us to live a Christ-like life, a heavenly life, a Christ-minded life. Doing the very things that Christ does, bringing people together. So naturally, he's going to say, okay, you, you're supposed to follow Jesus as opposed to follow the work of Satan, who from the very beginning, as Oscar prayed earlier, is sowing seeds of doubt and suspicion against God, tearing people apart. But here, God says, look, you're supposed to live according to Christ. Again, he's already reconciled. He's already brought enemies of god 
together with God himself on the cross. He brings people together. And so Christians are supposed to be bringing other people with that same very ministry of reconciliation. We bring other people towards God and we also seek in our Christian community to be strengthening the bonds of Christian brotherhood. Seeking reconciliation ultimately between God and man but also men and men. That's the first list, or I should say the first list that we're dealing with, verse 7. Now we turn to verse 5. We are also called to put to death sexual immorality. This is certainly an issue in today's culture where the responsibility, people say, of defining one's sexuality uh, is on the individual. So they encourage us to take up the authority... And define our own existence. So, for example, in Thailand, three men were wed together, according to Buddhist law, or Buddhist culture. I think the laws of Thailand prohibited it, but uh, the laws of Buddhism said it was okay, apparently. Um, And that's taking up their own authority to define, or redefine, I should say, what God has already defined. This verse right here, it's interesting, it assumes that the definitions, though, have already been drawn. Everything's already there by God's grace. Paul mentions sexual immorality, meaning that there are certain acts, according to God, that are actually immoral. The Greek word here is porneia. refers to everything that is sexual, <coughs> sexually immoral, whether it be prostitution, unchastity, fornication. And then this list right here, all this stuff here is connected with sexual immorality. So you have impurity. This is immoral sexual conduct, which actually exists. There are certain things that are pure. There are other things that are impure. Uh, They have passions here. The shameful passions which lead to sexual excess. There are evil desires here. Evil desires which may then be expanded with reference to the object of longing. The evil desires that give birth to longing after something. All these things reflect a worldview where there is already right and wrong according to God. It's not driven by what the individual thinks or what society determines might be right for that given time. But it is what God has already said and what God has already defined. And this again is the very nature of sin. Redefining for people, for ourselves, what God has already defined for us. That's what was going on in the garden. And now Paul says, no, you put those things away. Even the very instinct to define what God has already defined, and you worship God, and you live a life according to Christ, who is God. If you're visiting with us, you know, you might have non-Christian friends um, who struggle with sexual immorality, and maybe you know that they are moving towards sexual morality, Maybe you know that they are refusing to do certain other things. Please know that the reason why Christians are not doing this is not because they think that God is this heavenly prude, you know, who is against you guys all having a good time. I mean, remember, who is it that designed your body in the first place? To enjoy a certain type of thing in its right context, right? As Christians, we believe that God created this body, your bodies. To actually enjoy intimacy with your spouse. It's so important to note that what we are to put to death is not sex. It is not the expression of sexuality. 
But it is sex and sexuality defined by you and used for your selfish purposes. That's what we are to put to death here. Let's be really clear. For example, God says sex is to be enjoyed in the marriage covenant. Great, wonderful thing. So sex outside of the marriage covenant is not according to God's will. We are to put those things away. So if you are having sex outside of the marriage covenant, you are to repent of your sins. And God forgives you of those things. Within this church, you know, we can readily acknowledge that sex outside of the marriage covenant um, is a sin and not according to God's purposes. But, and so it happens a lot less than something else like viewing pornography or lust in general. This is no doubt a larger problem. Certainly for those consuming it, the consumption of it is driven by a lot of these things that we are to put, put away. Passions, evil desires that eventually swallow up the object of our desires. This, too, is what you, Christian, are to put away and kill. So again, this is a very practical sermon. So we're going to focus on what we can do to actually kill this lust and kill sexual immorality. For starters, what can we do? You must realize again that you are in a battle. The language is so clear. Put to death. Now, this doesn't mean that we strap ourselves with real weapons and we go battle all the institutions that are promoting sexual immorality. It's not what he says. He says here... Put to death the earthly that is in you here. This is talking about an internal thing that stems from the heart. We are to put it to death and kill it. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that the Christian life is like a stroll among the roses. As if we weren't going to fight and we weren't going to battle as if our lives weren't at stake certainly wasn't for Jesus. Why would it be for us? If we survey the biblical, all the biblical evidence for this being a battle, it's very clear. Peter urges in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passage of their flesh, which wage war against your soul. Do you guys feel that you, like you're in a battle, actually? This is Peter's expectation. It is God's expectation that we actually be battling against it in recognition, as Peter says, that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour, just waiting to pounce on the Christian who forgets that this life is a battle. And you see what is at stake here in this battle. It is salvation itself. As we battle through this life, clinging to Jesus Christ being resolved to fight against sin, what is at stake is our salvation, is it not? Matthew 5, 20 and 29, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members then that your whole body go into hell. I mean, salvation here is at stake. 
Of course, he's not telling us literally to gouge out our eye. John Piper says, even if you're missing one eye, your other eye can still look at something. (laughs) But you see here what's communicated. This is a real battle, and we are to expect it to be. So how do you fight against evil desires and passions? The best way is with biblical methods. The best way to fight against evil desires and passions is with biblical methods. So use your godly weapons. Now there are a lot of means that one could use to fight against sin, but the question is, are they the divinely appointed means? The ones where we know without doubt that the Spirit is in in order that you fight against sin. So let's just talk about one here. If you struggle with lust, are you memorizing verses about lust? Like if, I, if we asked you, you know, if a Christian asked you, um, where in scripture could I go to help battle lust? I mean, would you have something on your mind to say to them? As a reflection, really, that you know this is a battle and you're going to hide that word in your heart that I might not sin against you. If you don't have that word hidden in your heart, I think one can legitimately ask, how, how hard of a battle do you think this is? Are you reading and dwelling on biblical passages that speak about the attending dangers of sexual immorality? So if the thing itself is sexual immorality that is bringing you down, do you think about all the attending dangers that come with it? All the other things that follow along in its trail. Because it is all of those things, as verse chapter uh, 3, verse 6 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. If you struggle with lust and sexual immorality, let me encourage you before making that decision to pursue it, to give into it, that you think carefully about how all how this one decision will go on and affect all other aspects of your life. And if you think it's not true, just imagine. If I were to commit this act of sexual immorality, what will my wife think? What types of feelings might arise in a heart there that is looking at this sexual immorality of the husband? Or you can flip it around. If you are the one committing the sexual immorality, let's, let's assume that uh, maybe your wife or your spouse is the one who is committing the sexual immorality. Some sort of addiction, giving in to something. How would you feel if your partner were doing those very things? Would you not feel insecure? Some bit of hesitation? Great deal of fear? A great deal of worry. Think about those things. Proverbs 5 verse 3 says, The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Right? It appears attractive and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter, sharp as a two-edged sword, and her feet go down to death. Think about those things. All of the attending dangers. 
how it will break apart your marriage, break apart your family, allow no one to trust in you. We can come up with so many man-made methods to battle sin, and they may be helpful, but we can only really trust in the methods that are Holy Spirit-empowered. Psalm 119.11, I'll read it again. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Other biblical means here, other than uh, memorization of Scripture, here you have meditation on Scripture, you got praying over the Word, you got fasting, you got confession, you have Christian fellowship. Use the means, and let me encourage you, if you struggle with lust, find verses to memorize so you can fight against sin in your time of need. Who goes into a battle not strapped with ammunition, Right? Only the most mindless soldier would dare to do such a thing. And remember Jesus, who when he was in the desert, being tempted by the devil, he fought, quoting scripture, showing that he too was meditating on the word of God. When Israel was in the desert, he meditates on that while he was in the desert, battling against Satan. Let me also encourage you to pray over the words of God. Take Proverbs chapter 6. Read over that and pray over that as it helps you understand the attending dangers of your very own sin. How you might look and how it might appear that the woman's lips drip with honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but you know its end. You can pray that God would, by his divine grace, give you a sense of where that pattern of sin leads to. And also, something practical, is as you seek to mortify the sin of lust, remember that people are made in the image of God. As you seek to mortify the sin of lust, remember that people are made in the image of God. This means that all people possess dignity and worth because they are God's created people. And being made in the image of God, their purpose is to reflect God's character and his glory to the world, right? That's what they're, that's what they're designed to do by nature. Uh, God says, I want you to display my character and my glory to the whole entire world so that they know how good I am and that they would display my glory. They are not designed and they do not exist to be consumed for yours. You see, if you keep that biblical truth in mind, you begin to see them as designed by him, as created for him, with the purpose of representing him on earth. And with that knowledge, it becomes really difficult to use people for your end, for your desires. It becomes hard to claim other people for yourself for a few seconds, knowing that God has claim on them first and alone. With that knowledge, too, you begin to see your sin as something to be abhorred. You see your sin as you sin against God by setting yourself up in his place. You seize the lives of people as if they existed for your own twisted glory and your own twisted pleasure. You see your own sin as you sin against other people on the screen. You desire twisted pleasure from their victimization. From their willful disobedience, from their idolatry, you use them. You see your own depravity as it is laid bare, as you feed off of God's created people. 
to satisfy your carnality, your lust, and your desire. You remember, if we remember that all of God's people are made in His image, it becomes hard, doesn't it, to use people. This also helps us remember or to see people or to have an understanding of people that they, or to have a gospel view of people, I should say. Remembering that people are made in the image of God helps us have a gospel view of people. We read this recently in small groups in relation to seeing people that we evangelize. So we can see this too in effort to battle against sin. So in light of the fact that people are made in the image of God, pray that your love for others would increase. Even your love for strangers. So that eventually you want to identify with the plights of other people. With their real sufferings and real struggles and plights of their own. I mean, why is it that we get off on the sins of other people rather than mourn their condition? Brothers and sisters, Christ the Lord desires we be ambassadors of grace to the broken, not their abusers. Other useful and practical things you can do. Accountability can be a great help. So if you frequent certain internet sites, there are computer programs out there that will help uh, keep you accountable. If you need recommendations, you can come see me. Of course, meeting up with another Christian I find to be even more valuable than a computer program. There you can confess your sin, as Scripture calls us to, and we can be open and honest and have someone else labor with us as we run towards the cross. So if this is your struggle, seek out this accountability. But keep in mind, accountability is only useful insofar as people are willing to be vulnerable. If people are going to hide, they are going to hide. You can have all the methods and mechanisms you want, but they are not to be relied upon to the same degree as the Holy Spirit-empowered means. That is the Word of God. That is praying through Scripture. That is having fellowship. That is having... Uh, confession, that is hearing the word of God preached. But nevertheless, those things too are very useful. Again, if you approach the battle with against lust and sin on your own power, you will not win. Romans 8.13 tells us though that we can live if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Relying on what Christ has already done, mind you, already accomplished. And what he will do and promises to do by his spirit to make his glory known. Your life is already hid with Jesus Christ. In that language there, we can kind of understand it. Let's say if we're loving, writing a love letter and someone is away from us and we tell them, your heart is with me. And we're, we're giving them the assurance that, oh, I'm still thinking about you. But here, because our life is hid with Christ, it's like Christ tells us. I have your hearts, and I give you the means to go through this battle while you await my return. And he gives us his spirit to ensure that we battle. You know, the best way to battle sin that promises satisfaction is to battle it with a superior satisfaction. That comes from John Piper. And, but it, it is very biblical. 
And our superior satisfaction, Jesus tells us, is in himself and the gospel, which is why we're supposed to be heavenly minded in this battle. So one example comes from Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. Go ahead and turn over there. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. This comes in the Hall of Faith, the so-called Hall of Faith of Hebrews chapter 11. We're here, the author of Hebrews is holding out to us some people who have walked the faith and struggled and suffered. And he holds them out so that we might be encouraged. And this is what he says about Moses. He encourages us to look ahead to this appearing in glory, to the salvation that we have. And this is what he says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused all of the blessings that could come with growing up in the house of Pharaoh. Verse 25, choosing rather, this is the alternative, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ great, of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So how is it we are to ask, how does he refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and all of those attending so-called benefits. How does he refuse those things and then choose to be mistreated? How does he consider the reproach of Christ of greater wealth, that superior satisfaction of greater wealth than all of the earthly satisfaction that is held out to him? It says there for the reason being because he was looking to the reward. Piper says this is future grace. In the midst of sin. We can still struggle, but we trust in God's grace, which we know we already have. He's already adopted us. But we trust that he will give us more grace in our time of need. And so we therefore can refuse potential, supposed, earthly satisfaction for a superior satisfaction that is in Jesus Christ. Faith chooses here not to be satisfied with the pleasures of sin, but trusts in God's grace, looking to the future reward. John Piper speaks about what it looks like to fight the fight of faith using the word of God, trusting in God's future grace. This is what he says. The role of God's word is to feed faith's appetite for God. So you might have an appetite for sin. But he says, look, the word of God is to feed faith's appetite for God. And in doing this, it weans my heart away from the deceptive taste of lust. At first, lust begins to trick me into feeling that I would really miss out on some great satisfaction if I followed the path of purity, but then I take up the sword of the spirit and begin to fight. I read that it is better to gouge out my eye than to lust. I read that if I think about things that are pure and lovely and excellent, the peace of God will be with me. Philippians 4.8. I read that setting my mind on the flesh brings death, but setting my mind on the spirit brings life and peace. Romans 8.6. I read that lust wages war against my soul. 1 Peter 2.11. And that the pleasures of this life choke out the life of the Spirit. Luke 8, 14. But best of all, he says, I read that God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. And that the pure in heart will see God. Matthew 5, 8. And then he goes on and talks about how he prays through all of these scripture passages praying that his heart would believe in them every single day, every single morning. That's how he battles against sin. 
with the superior satisfaction of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, if this is your struggle and you feel the weight of guilt, you feel that you, what, that you are abusing those that you are to bring this gospel of reconciliation to, remember the gospel. Remember that he saves sinners like David, like Moses, like Abraham. He saves all of these sinners, whether they are committing adultery, adultery whether they struggle with drunkenness, whether they're giving over their wives to other people whom they should not, God saves these people. Let me encourage you too to remember what your struggle was like before you were saved. If you struggle with ungodly guilt and then you look back and see what your struggle is like now. And thank God for his grace. That even now by his spirit he's changing you and making you into a different person here. A new creation already even though you still need to put to death the sins of the flesh. And live life knowing that your father loves you. That when he sees you sin, he knows you're going to sin, and he knows your patterns, he knows where you came from. He saved you from where you came from. And so he's there to help you put to death these things. What a wonderful father we have. He's not going to kick you out, but he calls you to live according to his ways, his ways which sanctify living according to his truth. Remember the gospel. Let me speak to you if you hope to be one who helps someone who struggles with lust. Let me speak to you who wants to help someone who struggles with lust and sexual immorality. You know, in the church here, we have a wonderful opportunity to be agents of grace in people's lives. Fantastic opportunity. It's like in the Father's house, you have all these brothers and sisters here who are laboring for your joy in Christ. If you are in regular dialogue with someone who wrestles with lust or pornography or sexual immorality in general, perhaps a roommate or a spouse, another practical way you can help them, along with these very same ways, so the very means of grace God gives, memorization of Scripture, praying through Scripture for them, fasting, things like these things, another practical way to help them is to give yourself to understanding the sexualized culture that we live in and the effects that pornography has on our society, on your friend, on your very loved one. You realize that we live in a day where Carl's Jr. depends on nudity to market cheeseburgers. That's the twisted, hypersexualized culture we live in. Another example, take Abercrombie and Fitch. You know, you guys might not realize this, but while we might have been buying their jeans, they were using your money to market push-up bikini tops to seven-year-old girls. This is the hypersexualized culture we all live in, and who do you think is buying this stuff for their, for their little girls? It probably is not the men. It probably is the mothers, or the mothers of those children. Another example, a recent pornographic novel topped the New York Times bestsellers list. Did the same, topped another bestsellers list in the UK. And who was largely responsible for its success? Mothers with children. This here is not an issue that just affects guys. This here is an issue that affects men and women. This is the hypersexualized society we live in. And if we are to help one another put it away, we cannot ignore it and its effects on all of our lives. 
You see here that it takes its toll on all of us, man, woman. For entertainment, for example, people watch romantic comedies. You know, we enjoy having our heartstrings, emotional heartstrings pulled this way and that way while actors and actresses are paid to be intimate. People derive pleasure from their sin, not considering that who they are or who they are accountable to ultimately. Right? I mean, when we're watching romantic comedies and these things actually happen, I mean, how often are we thinking that we too are enjoying, the, are taking enjoyment from their sin? Our hearts are callous. How often do you drive by the many billboards and gentlemen's clubs without a care in the world over all the souls of men and women giving themselves to sexual immorality? Seeing that you too have been affected by it puts you in a very good position to actually be of help. To see the sin of lust and immorality from God's perspective. So it's not primarily, okay, get this, it's not primarily a sin against you, even though it is. But seeing that we have been affected by it too helps us see it from God's perspective. You know, to care about it when it only concerns you that, that should actually give you some kind of pause. Because everywhere around the world this is happening. These sins are being committed against God. People who are made in the image of God have steered away from Him. And that should cause us to mourn really all the time. Not just when the sin is committed against you. And so we want to try and see it from God's perspective. That'll help you actually help your friend so much more. Because you begin to realize that the problem is so much larger than what happens within your household. But in the whole entire world, as people rebel against God and use their bodies for ways in which God calls them not to. Right? I mean, we understand it when the, when the issue happens in our home or against us. You know, we're right there. We are offended. We hate sin. We desperately want to put it to death. But when you value all people... Made in his image, when you side with God and his ways and his salvation, would you not want to put it to death everywhere in the world? Not only in your home or your dorm room, but everywhere. If we are to help in this battle, others, if we are to help others in our church, our loved one, our children, as we prepare our children, particularly for the onslaught that is to come very soon, it helps so much to understand the culture. One way you can get to know the culture and its effects on us is to read good material on the issue. Again, okay, this is material given to us by God's grace to help us fight in the battle. And if you are fighting with your loved one, with your roommate, why would you go into battle and not prepare yourself? But we have all of this ammunition to use in the fight on behalf of our loved one. If you want to, re if you want to read titles on, uh, if you want to read books on biblical sexuality in general, we can give you recommendations. If you want to know how uh, the gospel can help fight against lust and pornography, we can give you suggestions. If you want to read a book on how the male brain particularly is affected by images, we can give you that too. So scientifically, you can actually see that your loved one's brain is changing because of sin. I mean, there are physical effects to sin. The best way you can join your friend, your loved one's battle is to share in the battle plans, right? To know the strengths and weaknesses of your own army and the plan of the attack of the enemy.
And of course, more foundational than familiarizing yourself with the struggle and the culture is to familiarize yourself with the gospel. How can we be agents of grace if we do not know and appreciate that same grace? Where you too understand that you were hostile towards God. Sure, it might not look like that. But it says right here, you were hostile in mind. When you get to that place, when you realize that you are not above any temptation, above any sin. When you despise your sin and see your heart for what it is, an adulterous heart. And the fact that God still saved you. Then you can be an agent of grace. Then you approach the issue in a different way. You approach the issue really as teammates against sin. Teammates against Satan. A wing of the army against the same enemy. And you too will know that in your own heart, you know that putting your own sin to death is a long and often hard process. But that God gives grace for it. Then you'll be an agent of grace then you'll be like the cavalry riding into the battle, helping to pick up your fellow sinner and go towards the throne of grace, sometimes needing to encourage them in that direction. And I'm not saying it won't be hard. I'm not saying that you'll be less hurt, but I can guarantee you that you will approach helping your loved one dependent on that same grace that saves. That same grace that that person needs is the same grace that you need. So to conclude, we seek and set a heavenly mind, Christ, because we have been saved. Father has adopted us, and now he's bringing us along in this battle, where we need not feel an ungodly sense of guilt, but a godly sense of guilt that brings about a godly sense of remorse, and that helps us turn and repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, thank God that in Christ we are united to him. His righteousness, if you are a believer, is your righteousness. His death to sin is your death to sin. His new life is your new life. And where he is in all of its perfection is where he promises we will be. He has our hearts and he gives us his spirit to draw them to him. And even now he's readying us for these things, the things that are above. Look there in verse 10. It says there, the new self... Which you, if you are a Christian, have already put on. He says the new self is being renewed. Praise God it is being renewed. In knowledge. After the image of its creator. That's why we rely on the spirit. It is spirit empowered means. It's because the spirit empowered means renews us in knowledge. After the image of God. Its creator. And with that longing to be where he is. Where our life is hidden with him. With that longing to see him in glory, even in the difficulty of the fight, we can say, look there in verse 17. We can pray that others would do this. We can pray that we would ourselves would do this. We could do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel as it is that that saves. We thank you that in it, it speaks of a glorious and supreme Christ 
who alone is able to bring about universal pacification, who is able to bring about the reconciliation of the church, who is able to decisively save us and to seat us in the heavenlies where you are. Father, we pray that we would seek and set our minds on you our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that our hearts and our lives have been hidden with you. Lord, we pray that we would long for you to see all of the salvation in its fullness and, and that longing would drive us to a life of holiness. Father, help us not rely on our own selves to battle against sin, but help us rely on the Spirit because we know that by if we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, we will live. Father, for those of us here who struggle with an ungodly condemnation or for those who want to heap on an ungodly condemnation, Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes back to the cross that gives us fuel to fight. May we, knowing that we have received him, may we walk in Jesus Christ, recognizing that you have already brought us into your family and that you promised to never leave us nor forsake us but to be with us every step of the way. Father, we pray that you, we would know without a shadow of a doubt how you have lavished your love upon us. And even now you are making us holy, changing us, bringing us from one degree of glory into another. Father, we pray that in our fight against sin that Christ would truly loom large even today and even this week. In your great and powerful name we pray. Amen.